Hello, and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills Brexit podcast, one of a series of podcasts that we are producing focusing on the impact of Brexit on business as we get closer to Brexit date, 29 March 2019. I am Tom Henderson, a solicitor in our disputes division in London and currently seconded to our Brexit team. Today I am joined by Maura McIntosh, a professional support consultant in our disputes division, and Julie Farley, a professional support lawyer in our corporate division. Both Maura and Julie have been looking at the implications of Brexit on our clients' English law contracts. In this podcast, we're going to be focusing on the question of whether a contracting party can bring its contractual arrangements to an end on account of Brexit. We know that in light of the potential changes to the landscape as a result of Brexit, many commercial parties will be looking again at their current contractual arrangements. For instance, a contracting party may find that it is no longer permitted to provide a service across the EU that it is contracted to provide. The possibility of new tariffs or customs duties may make what was once a commercial bargain an uncommercial one. In these types of cases, a contracting party may wish to bring its contracts to an end. It is important to understand how this can be achieved. Now, Maura, if I could start with you, there are a number of different ways that a contract may come to an end. Will you please set out some of the options before we really focus in on those areas we think are most relevant to the Brexit scenario? Yes, happy to. Um, There are lots of ways a contract may come to an end. I'd say there are broadly five categories. First of all, the contract could come to an end naturally, either because all of the obligations are performed or because it expires at the end of a fixed term. Uh, Secondly, the parties may decide to end the contract by agreement on whatever terms they manage to agree. Third, the contract may be brought to an end by one of the parties exercising a right to terminate, which is set out in the contract itself. So one of a number of clauses that might allow termination in specified circumstances. So, for example, this could be termination for breach or it could be on notice or maybe in the event of insolvency. Fourth, there might be a common law right to terminate on grounds that the counterparty has repudiated the contract. And the fifth alternative, I think, is that a contract may be discharged on grounds of frustration at common law. Now, in terms of the options that are most likely to be relevant to Brexit-related events, these, I think, will be either um, triggering a contractual termination clause, perhaps a Brexit clause, uh, or a force majeure clause, or a material adverse change clause, or possibly the contract coming to an end as a result of frustration. Now, of course, in reality, if a, a contracting party is in, in difficulties and wants to terminate a contract, its its first port of call will often be to try to reach agreement with the counterparty. But we're assuming that's not an option for the purposes of this podcast. Thanks, Maura. I'd say the starting point in that case is whether the parties have agreed an express right to terminate, which is triggered if and when the UK leaves the EU, or some variation to that. This could have been incorporated specifically as part of a Brexit proofing exercise. Julie, I know you've been looking closely at Brexit clauses. Is this a viable option? The short answer is yes, but of course it all depends on the actual provisions of the clause. The key issue to consider is really what particular Brexit-related event triggers the right to terminate and whether that event has in fact occurred. And it's very important to comply with the provisions of the clause. So, for example, the way you give notice, the length of notice and so on, in the same way as you would with any other express termination clause. 
But I should mention that from what I've seen, the incorporation of a Brexit clause is not particularly common. And so the ability to rely on such a clause to terminate is not going to arise very often. Uh, So the parties will likely need to look at other options under the contract and otherwise, um, which we'll get on to. And it's worth mentioning at this point that some contracts give one or both parties an express right to terminate the contract on notice, sometimes called termination at will. If you have such a clause in your contract, then you could look to use that as an exit route. But going back to the so-called Brexit clause, when it comes to drafting a Brexit clause, I would suggest that listeners download our previous Brexit podcast episode, in which we assess the impact of Brexit on existing and future contracts. And in that podcast, I set out some of the issues that should be considered when including a Brexit clause in a contract. So I would encourage people to listen to that. The key point is that there is no standard Brexit clause, and it's very important to clearly define what the trigger event is going to be and the consequences of that event occurring. If the clause is not carefully drafted, it may not be a reliable option for a party looking to terminate. You mentioned other options under a contract. The two that Maura outlined at the start, force majeure clauses and material adverse change clauses, seem to be the most viable theoretically. Can you take us through how each of these clauses work and the likelihood of either applying in the Brexit scenario? Well, starting with force majeure... Um, A force majeure clause is in essence a clause that excuses a party from performance if it is prevented from performing by particular categories of event outside its control. And it's important to say here that force majeure is not a term of art. There's no standard definition, so it all depends on what the parties have included in their contract. The first question when you're looking at force majeure is whether one of the categories of event has occurred, and here we're thinking about Brexit-related events. This will depend on how the particular provision is drafted. In most contracts, force majeure is defined by reference to a non-exhaustive list of events, together with a general wrap-up provision to include other events which are not within a party's reasonable control. The clause may also exclude specific categories of event, which the parties agree will not constitute force majeure. So in the run-up to the referendum, parties may have expressly included or excluded Brexit-related events in defining force majeure, so it may be that the drafting makes it pretty clear. But if there is no express mention of Brexit within the definition of force majeure, there are a number of categories of event which are commonly included in the definition which might occur in relation to Brexit. The most common include events such as acts of governments, restriction, suspension or withdrawal of any licences and changes in law or regulation. However, it's not enough to just have an event falling within the definition of force majeure The clause will generally be triggered only if the event prevents, hinders or delays a party performing its obligations under the agreement. Typically, if that happens, the party's obligations are suspended without liability while the impact of the force majeure event continues, though there are likely to be obligations to notify the counterparty of the force majeure event and to seek to mitigate its effects. Most force majeure clauses will also give the counterparty or both parties the right to terminate the contract if the force majeure event continues for a specified period of time. 
Again, that will depend on the drafting. One of the points you mentioned at the start, Tom, was the risk of the parties finding themselves bound to an uneconomic agreement. On that point specifically, the economic impact on parties relating to the UK leaving the EU is very unlikely to trigger a force majeure event. A change in economic or market circumstances which makes the contract less profitable or makes it more difficult for a party to perform is not generally seen as sufficient to trigger a force majeure clause. The courts have also held that an increase in the cost of performance of a contract above what was originally anticipated will not be sufficient to claim force majeure. Parties wishing to rely on Brexit-related events as force majeure in a contract where there is no express provision are therefore likely to have to point to something beyond mere economic hardship. So that's force majeure clauses. What about material adverse change clauses? Well, a material adverse change, or MAC clause, is in essence a clause that allows a party to refuse to complete a deal if a material adverse change occurs after the contract date. So it may, for example, be a buyer refusing to complete a purchase of a business, or it may be a lender refusing to advance sums under a loan. Such clauses may be drafted widely, subject to specific carve-outs of events that will not qualify as a MAC, or they may be drafted more narrowly to specify particular events that will qualify as a MAC. As with any contract term, the court's interpretation of a MAC clause will depend on the specific language used in the context of the contract as a whole, as well as the background facts and commercial context. The party that's looking to terminate the contract under the clause has the burden of establishing that a MAC has occurred. In general, that's not going to be easy. A court will not be easily persuaded that a party should be released from its obligations under a concluded contract, and so there is a heavy evidential burden on the party that is seeking to rely on the clause. A party can't rely on a MAC clause where it knew of the relevant circumstances on entering into the agreement, although it may be possible to invoke the clause if conditions have worsened in a way that makes them materially different in nature. As the title suggests, the change relied on must also be material in the sense that it must be sufficiently significant or substantial. It can't just be a temporary blip. The ability of Brexit or any connected market shock to trigger a MAC clause in a contract will be heavily dependent on the specific factual circumstances of the arrangement in question and obviously the drafting of the MAC clause concerned. For example, Brexit could be carved out from a MAC clause or could be specifically included as a MAC event. In general, it probably won't be straightforward to argue that a MAC clause is triggered by Brexit unless there's a particularly unexpected turn of events that has a dramatic impact on the transaction. But it may be applicable in limited circumstances, such as in specific sectors where Brexit could potentially have an automatically damaging effect on a company which is dependent on business in the EU to carry on that business. For example, in the case of the financial services industry and passporting rights. Again, it will all depend on the terms of the clause and the specific circumstances. Thanks, Julie. So force majeure clauses and MAC clauses may only apply in certain circumstances. What about frustration, Maura? Could that help? 
Well, it may do. Overall, I'd say it's likely to be a challenge for most contracts, but it's certainly possible depending on the circumstances. Um, Frustration is a common law doctrine, so it doesn't depend on any particular term having been included in the contract. Instead, frustration brings a contract to an end automatically if an event occurs after the contract is entered into, which is not due to the fault of either party and which makes further performance impossible or illegal, or which makes the relevant obligations radically different from those contemplated by the parties at the time of contracting. Now, understandably, since it's a rather dramatic interference with the terms the parties have agreed to govern their relationship, the courts have tended to apply the doctrine of frustration narrowly, at least historically. So in particular, they've emphasised that it's not to be seen as a way for a contracting party to escape from what's turned out to be a bad bargain, so it can't be invoked lightly. It's also more difficult to invoke when the event you want to rely on could have been foreseen at the time of contracting. Now, the fact that an event was foreseeable or even that it was a subject of express contractual provision will not necessarily mean it can't give rise to frustration, but it makes it more difficult. So, for example, the parties may be able to foresee the possibility of a strike and may even include provisions relating to that possibility. But if a strike lasts so long as to mean that when the contract can eventually be performed, it will be radically different from what they contracted for, then the contract will have been frustrated. But it's fair to say that the the less foreseeable an event is, the more likely it is to lead to frustration. Now, as to how this doctrine might come into play in the context of Brexit, well, it, it can't be ruled out, certainly. I mean, you can envisage there being scenarios in which the form of exit that the UK negotiates with the EU, or certainly if there's no agreement at all, might leave a contract incapable of being performed or, or radically different from what was contemplated by the parties at the time. So, for example, where a company in a certain industry has existing contractual obligations to conduct business in the EU, but it's suddenly unable to do so for legal reasons and there's no means of remedying that position, then its contracts may be frustrated. But in general, I think the scope for arguing that a contract has been frustrated as a result of Brexit-related events is likely to be limited. Frustration can't be claimed just because an event makes contractual obligations more difficult or expensive to perform. And, of course, frustration is less likely to apply where contracts were entered into in the run-up to or since the referendum so that Brexit was foreseeable or expected at the time of entering into the contract. Though, of course, there may be arguments as to whether the referendum result was foreseeable or whether the ultimate form Brexit takes, particularly if it's a no-deal Brexit, was foreseeable. So even for contracts entered into around the time of the referendum, it's not necessarily a closed-door And I think it's important to remember that we're venturing into new territory here, so the court's reaction may be difficult to predict. That last point is quite interesting, as there's a case before the High Court at the moment between the European Medicines Agency and its landlord, Canary Wharf, in which the EMA is arguing that Brexit frustrates its lease, entitling it to walk away without liability. And one of the points being addressed is when Brexit became foreseeable. I know you've been following this case quite closely, Maura, Can you explain what the case is about and what you think the likely outcome is going to be? Yes, well, the background of the case is that the EMA entered into an agreement for lease back in 2011 to take a 25-year lease of a newly constructed tower in Churchill Place, Canary Wharf. The building was completed and the lease was entered into in 2014, and the EMA were involved in the base-built design and and very extensive fit-out works at the property. 
But following the UK's decision to leave the EU, it was announced that the EMA would be relocated from London to Amsterdam, and that gave the EMA a problem, how to exit the tenancy. And while the EMA is entitled to assign the lease or sublet the property, the tenancy doesn't contain a, a break clause. So the EMA argued in its negotiations with Canary Wharf that the lease would be frustrated by Brexit. And in response, Canary Wharf issued an application seeking a court declaration that Brexit will not frustrate the lease. So if the application is successful, the EMA will remain liable as tenant in these premises that have obviously become surplus to its requirements. The EMA is arguing that as an agency of the EU, its headquarters must always be within an EU member state and therefore it's incapable of using the premises. And they say that Brexit was not an event which, as they put it, a person of ordinary intelligence would have recognised as likely to occur, uh, and nor was it foreseen by the parties either in 2011 when they um, entered into the agreement for lease or, or in 2014 when they entered into the lease itself, if that's relevant. Now, Canary Wharf argues that Brexit was foreseeable at the time of entry into the agreement for lease and indeed the lease itself. Um, They say Article 50 was in place before 2011 and the debate on the desirability of membership of the EU was a topical one, particularly uh, by the time the parties entered into the lease in 2014, given the the lead up to the 2015 general election in which, of course, David Cameron had promised a a referendum on membership of the EU. And they say that if the EMA had wanted to be able to exit in those circumstances, they could have negotiated a a break clause. Uh, Interestingly, the parties have been given permission to adduce expert evidence in the field of modern British political history and political science. Um, According to the court order, the role of the expert is going to be um, limited to collating relevant information that's in the public domain and providing a narrative of the facts in context regarding the possibility of the UK leaving the EU as it was viewed before the date of the agreement for lease back in 2011. And rather unusually, the court order specifically states that the expert's reports are not to include the expression of expression of an opinion on foreseeability. They're just to um, collate the information. Now, there should be a decision in the case before Brexit date. Uh, The case has been expedited for that purpose. As for how it will turn out, well, uh, that's that's difficult to say, I think. Um, I think the point that we can make is that if the court finds that the lease is frustrated, that doesn't necessarily mean the same will apply to other leases or other contracts. The EMA's arguably in a fairly unique position as a European agency that's legally required to be located in an EU member state and it says is is not legally able to hold property or be a professional landlord in relation to property in a non-EU country. So a decision in favour of the EMA, if there is one, I think could be quite fact-specific. But um, as you said, we're we're watching the case closely uh, and it's obviously possible that other tenants or other contracting parties may want to run frustration-based arguments to avoid liabilities under contracts in a similar way. Thanks. Before we finish, we've talked a lot about the ways in which a contracting party may want to bring a contract to an end. From a litigator's perspective, Maura, what is the key risk that should be borne in mind when looking to terminate a contract? Well, as we've discussed in most cases, it's unlikely to be straightforward to establish a right to terminate as a result of Brexit if there's no clear express provision. Um, So the biggest risk for a party terminating a contract, uh, as in any situation of that sort, is, is that they're mistaken in believing they have a right to terminate. 
because if a, a contracting party purports to terminate the contract when they don't have a right to do so, then their subsequent refusal to perform any obligations under the contract could itself amount to a repudiation of the contract and the other party could accept the repudiation and terminate the contract and sue for damages, including damages for loss of the profits that would have been earned under the contract, which could obviously be substantial depending on the circumstances. So I think um, the most important point is to consider your position carefully and take legal advice on the strength of your case before taking any action. Thank you very much for your time, Julian Mora. I think the key takeaway is that if there's no express right to terminate, either generally or on Brexit, then it's likely to be challenging in most circumstances to establish a right to terminate or suspend performance under a more general force majeure or mat clause, or by the common law doctrine of frustration. So if you want to be able to rethink your contractual arrangements on Brexit, if possible, the best course of action is to include an express right to terminate on the UK exiting the EU. However, that might be challenging given how soon that will be. The alternative could be an express right to termination on, for instance, a situation where there's no adequate arrangements in place at the end of the proposed transition period, or if Brexit has particularly negative consequences and those consequences are specified, uh, for instance, Of course, ultimately, what is advisable will, as ever, depend on the facts and circumstances. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com, for more insights relevant to your business.